Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mitzpah of Gilead. And from Mitzpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aroer to the neighborhood of Mineth, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Kiramim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came, home to, came to his home at Mitzpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to, to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. And then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gilead four days in the year. And allow me to pray for us as we approach God's word. Heavenly Father, as we come to stories like this in your word, they can be confusing for us as we hear of names that are hard for us to pronounce. We hear of places that mean nothing to us. We, we see practices that don't occur in our own time, and we can wonder, what does this have to do with us? And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be with us this morning, showing us that you are the same God who is still at work in our lives now. Would you give us understanding about how this story may also be the story of our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So one of my favorite TV shows is a show called The Office. And in case you haven't seen it, it's a show about the awkward humor surrounding this paper company called Dunder Mifflin. And so much of the awkwardness of the show is driven by the manager of this paper company named Michael Scott. And in my opinion, one of the most awkward and most cringeworthy episodes in the whole series is an episode called Scott's Tots. In this episode, we learned that 10 years ago, Michael Scott had visited a class of inner city third graders and promised to pay for their college tuition if they graduated high school. Sounds a little bit like what the billionaire Robert Smith did for graduates of Morehouse College this past week. Well, in the present day of this episode, Scott's tots are soon to graduate, and so Michael Scott goes to visit them. And as you might guess, he receives quite a reception when he goes to visit. Some of the students have written and choreographed this hip-hop number for him. 
He hears moving speeches from the teachers about how much his promise has meant to them. And he also hears students talk about his promise, how his promise has kept them on the right track in the face of adversity. And then Michael himself finally gets up to address this crowd of people. And the first thing he asks is, who has ever done anything stupid in their lives? And people kind of confusedly raise their hands. And then he confesses that he's not going to be able to pay for anyone's college tuition. Now, as you might expect, there's an uproar from the students and the parents and the teachers that are there. And the obvious question gets posed to him. Why on earth would you make a promise like this that you cannot keep? And Michael Scott reveals that his beliefs were driving his behavior. He says, I thought I would be a millionaire by the time I was 30, but I wasn't even close. And then I thought, maybe by the time I was 40, but by 40, I actually had less money than when I was 30. Maybe by my 50s, I don't know. Because of Michael Scott's beliefs about himself and about his life, he ended up acting in a way that ended in heartache. Not only for Scott's tots, but for himself as well. And that's exactly what we see taking place in the story of Jephthah. Because of Jephthah's beliefs about himself, about life, and about God, he acts in a way that ends up in heartache. He makes this incredibly foolish vow that ends up unraveling. It ends in tragedy, both for himself and for his daughter. And in the same way, our beliefs flow out into our behavior. Whether you would consider yourself a Christian or not, we all have beliefs about ourselves, about the way life works, and about God. And we have what I will call theoretical beliefs. These are the the things that we say with our mouths that we believe, the things that we intellectually agree to. But then we also have what I'll call our functional beliefs. And these are the things that we believe in our hearts, in the core of our being. And our functional beliefs can have a very different understanding of the way the world works than our theoretical beliefs. And like Michael Scott, like Jephthah, if our functional beliefs aren't in line with reality, then our lives are gonna end up unraveling. And so today, as we look at the story of Jephthah, we're going to see that our lives can result in needless heartache if we don't understand three things. God's favor, God's word, and God's grace. So first, we need to understand God's favor. So in verse 30, we see that Jephthah Jephthah utters this vow to God. And as we know, a vow is a promise to do something no matter what. And here, Jephthah vows that if God helps him to defeat the Ammonite armies, then he's going to sacrifice the first thing that comes out of his house. Now, we're going to look at the content of this vow a little bit later, but here we can stop and ask the question, why does Jephthah make this vow in the first place? It's because Jephthah believes that he needs to win God's favor by promising something to him. He doesn't understand that he already has God's favor. Even before Jephthah makes this vow, in the opening verse, verse 29, 
we're told that the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. In the Old Testament, when the Spirit would come upon someone, that meant that God was with them, empowering them to fulfill a certain task. So later in Judges, we'll see that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson, giving him superhuman strength. And so because the Spirit of the Lord was already on Jephthah, this should have been proof to him that he already had God's favor in this matter. By giving him his spirit, God had already demonstrated to Jephthah that he was going to give him victory. He was going to show his favor. And if that is so, then we can ask another question. Where did Jephthah get the idea that he needed to do this? Why does he think he needs to make this vow? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One we'll look at in a moment. But I think one of the main reasons is because it seems that his life had taught him that this is the way things work. Now, this is what I mean. We didn't read the first part of Jephthah's story, but if you go back and you look at the beginning of chapter 11, you'll see that Jephthah's whole life is about bargaining. If you read the beginning of Jephthah's story, we're told that he was an illegitimate son of Gilead. And so when he grew up, all of his half-brothers we're not going to share their inheritance with the product of their father's affair. And so they drive Jephthah out of their house. But then the Ammonites come and they make war against Israel. And Jephthah was a mighty warrior. And so these same people who had driven Jephthah out now go and find him with the intent of bringing him back so that Jephthah may lead them in fighting against the Ammonites. But in order to win Jephthah's favor, they promise to make Jephthah their leader. And there's this negotiation that goes back and forth until they reach the agreement that if the people of Gilead accept Jephthah and make him their leader, then he'll fight for them. His life had taught him that you have to, in order to gain someone's acceptance or favor, then you have to have something or you have to do something in order to win them over. And so Jephthah takes this same way of relating and he applies it to God. Now I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that most of us have probably learned something pretty similar to that at some point in our lives. We have, we have learned that if people are going to accept us and give us their favor, we have to do something to win it over. And maybe we learned that from the way our parents related to us. Whenever we did right things, whenever we made the right choices, our parents were happy with us for a while. But then whenever we messed up, all we felt was our parents' anger and disappointment and blame. And, and so we learned that you've got to perform if you're going to get people's approval. This is the way that most of us have learned to relate to our peers as well. If we're going to get the favor or approval of our friends, then we have to know the right people. We've got to wear the right clothes, drive the right car, send our kids to the right schools. And it ends up being a lot of work in order to win over people's favor, doesn't it? There's a comedian named John Mulaney who says, when I walk down the street, I need everybody all day long to like me. It's exhausting. But it not only exhausts us, it ends up hurting us as well. Have you ever done something pretty foolish because you wanted to be liked by other people? 
Have you ever humiliated yourself in order to impress others? Or have you ever disappointed your spouse or your kids because you wanted to look good in front of other people? Or have you ever gone off at your kids because they made you look bad in front of other people? We do all of these things because we believe that in order to gain the favor of others, we have to win it. It all comes by what we do. And so in a way, it makes total sense that we would take this way of relating and apply it to God as well. We think that we need to do the right things in order to get God to like us, in order for him to be on our side. We have to have something to offer him. Like Jephthah, this may look like bargaining with God. I can remember more than one occasion in my life where I prayed something to the effect of, God, if you would just give me this thing, then I'll stop doing this. Or God, if you would just allow this to happen, then I'll do that in return. But we don't have to bargain with God because the Bible tells us that God has already given us all of his blessings in Christ. And if not outright bargaining, then maybe we believe that God is only happy with us when we read our Bibles, when we pray, when we go to church faithfully, maybe when we volunteer some of our time or give some of our money. And we believe that God is unhappy with us when we don't do those things. But the reality is, God does not relate to us based on what we do for him. No, God relates to us based on what Christ has done for us. And so if you are in Christ, then like Jephthah, you already have God's favor. You don't have to do anything to win it. And just like the Spirit was proof for Jephthah, so it is for us as well. Because in Romans 5.5, we're told that the Holy Spirit pours out God's love into our hearts. If you've ever wondered what the Holy Spirit does, one of its main jobs is to convince you that God loves you, that you have his favor in Christ. And do you see how that could change everything? It means that we can turn from having to win God's favor to loving and serving him from the security of his favor. And if we already have God's favor, then we can quit hurting other people as well in attempt to build up our sense of self-worth. And instead, we can serve them in humility and love. That is what happens when we understand God's favor. But we also need to understand God's word, which is our second point this morning. So this is where we're going to look at the content of the vow that Jephthah made in verse 31. If you look, he says, Whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So we've already answered the question of why Jephthah makes this vow, but now we can look at the question of what is it exactly that Jephthah is vowing to do? You know, surely he's just promising to make an animal sacrifice to the Lord, right? Well, in the original language of the Old Testament, the wording is a little bit ambiguous, and so that is one possible translation. But this vow could also be translated that whomever comes out of my house, I will offer him up for a burnt offering. And I actually believe that that's how we're supposed to understand it here. 
And I believe that for two reasons. One, during this time, animals didn't live in houses. Even domesticated animals did not stay with people in ancient Near East. And so Jephthah wouldn't, wouldn't have had any dogs or cats in his tent that he was vowing to sacrifice if he had success. And the second reason I believe that is because if Jephthah had simply meant an animal, then he wouldn't have been distraught when his daughter was the first thing that came out of his house. No, the vow wouldn't have been binding on her. So I think that what Jephthah is actually vowing to do here is offer a human sacrifice to the Lord. And again, we can ask, why on earth would he do that? Jephthah seems to be a religious man. He addresses the Lord by his personal covenantal name. So, so why would, would Jephthah think that God wants an, a human sacrifice? Well, it's because Jephthah didn't understand God's word. The Old Testament is very clear that human sacrifice is abominable to God. Let me just list off a few examples. Leviticus 18.21, Leviticus 22-5, Deuteronomy 12.31, Deuteronomy 18.10. All of these tell us that offering human sacrifices are detestable to God. So Jephthah should have known that that was absolutely forbidden. But Jephthah's understanding of who God was and what he wanted had been corrupted by the pagan cultures around him. You see, the Ammonites, the people who were oppressing Israel, worshipped a god named Molech. And the way to get Molech on your side, the way to get him to do things for you, was to sacrifice your children to him. And so Jephthah's understanding of God had become more shaped by the culture around him than it had by God's word. And consequently, he ends up making this terrible, terrible vow. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, then we need to ask ourselves if there are places where we're allowing our beliefs to be shaped by something other than God's word. Are there blind spots in our lives that we are not aware of? If I may put it this way, are there places where we are more American than we are Christian? I think as Americans, one common blind spot for us is the way that we approach money. The prominent view of money in our culture is that we earned it, and so we get to spend it how we want. And in fact, we should spend it on ourselves. And money gets talked about this way so much that we can become blind to the reality that money is simply a gift given to us by God. God has made us stewards of money, and we are to be good stewards of it, which involves giving some of our money away for the good of other people. And unless we approach money this way, it's actually going to end up becoming a curse to us. In fact, I recently read a New York Times article that was titled, I'm rich and that makes me anxious. I think another way our beliefs have been skewed by the world around us is by how we view a successful or a good life. We think that if God is really blessing us, then that's going to look like upward mobility. It's going to look like having more and doing more. And I think that's one of the reasons that we all try so hard on social media to post pictures that convince not only others but ourselves that we are truly hashtag blessed. But what happens when we do that? 
Well, we start seeing the people in our lives either as stepping stones to get us where we want or obstacles that are getting in our way. And either way, we simply just use other people as props in the success stories of our lives. But we become callous and unable to love, alienated from those around us. No, the Bible teaches, teaches us that instead, the good life is one of downward mobility. The good life is, is being last, not first. It is seeking to serve rather than to use. Now, please don't think that, you know, this visiting pre- preacher is coming in and he's just trying to accuse you all of living in unbiblical ways. I recognize that all of us as Christians have beliefs where our, our culture, our family, and our circumstances have shaped them more than God's word. And that's true of pastors as well, whose job it is to teach God's word. And that's why we need to constantly be testing our hearts and our lives by the standard of God's word. Because if we don't, then we're going to end up living according to these faulty beliefs. And we're going to do things that are detrimental to us and damaging to others. And why is that the case? Because God is the creator of all things. And as such, he's the only one who can tell us how life is really supposed to work. And he tells us that in his word. It's, it's something like, the manufacturer's instructions. Now, if you're anything like me, when you're putting together a piece of furniture or unpackaging a new gadget, you probably ignore the instructions until you come to a problem that you can't figure out, and then you go back and see what you were supposed to be doing all along. And we can treat the Bible the same way. We can largely ignore it until we screw up and then create a problem in our lives that we can't fix. But God lovingly gives us his word so that we will know the truth about ourselves, about our lives, and about him. And when we come to God's word first, and we we allow that to shape our lives, then only then will we discover what it is to really know love. Only then will we truly find joy. Only then will the desires of our hearts be fulfilled. So we need to understand God's favor, God's word, and finally, we need to understand God's grace. So if you'll look with me again, after Jephthah makes this foolish vow and defeats the Ammonites, verse 33 says that they were subdued before the people of Israel. And then when Jephthah comes home triumphant, what's the first thing that comes out of his house? It says, behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances. She was his only child. And as soon as Jephthah sees her, he realizes what a foolish thing he's done. But you know what's even sadder than the fact that he made this vow in the first place? It's that he thinks he has to go through with it. He believes that if he does not go through with this vow he has made, that God is somehow going to repay him for what he has done. What he doesn't understand is that God is a God of grace. And in fact, God in his grace provided laws in the Old Testament for cases such as these. In Leviticus 5, 
we're told that if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt, he shall bring to the Lord as compensation a lamb or a goat for a sin offering. God actually doesn't want Jephthah to bear the guilt for the foolish vow that he has made. But Jephthah doesn't get that. He thinks that he is bound by his own foolishness. And so in verse 39, we're told that he did with her according to his vow that he had made. And we might think like, did he, did he really sacrifice his daughter? You know, some people want to soften this and say, no, he, he just dedicated, to, dedicated her to a life of temple service or he just prevented her from marrying But I don't think that really would make sense of why his daughter asked for two months to go and mourn. Now, I think the best understanding is the plainest one, that Jephthah sacrificed his daughter as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And all because he did not understand God's grace for what he had done. Now, I'm going to give you all the benefit of the doubt and assume that none of you have vowed to commit human sacrifice. I'm just going to say that's probably a safe bet. But I think that we can all be like Jephthah in that we allow something that we have done to become binding on our lives. And I think that plays out in two ways. First, we can believe that there's just no changing the foolish or sinful things that we have done. We can believe that we just have to live with the consequences and that those things are now defining for our lives. Let me give you just a humorous example. Before I started high school, cell phones were still kind of new. They weren't as ubiquitous as they are now. Not everybody had them. But I got a cell phone about a week before I started high school. And on the very first day of high school, in my very first class, I forgot to turn my cell phone on silent. And so you can guess what happened. It went off in the middle of class, and so the teacher pointed it out, asked whoever's phone that was to turn it off, and I sat there just completely mortified because I believed that I was going to be known for this mistake for the rest of my high school career. As I waited for that class to end, I thought to myself, great, I'm just going to be known as cell phone boy for the next four years. Now, thankfully, my fears were unfounded, And I know this is something of a trivial example, but I want to ask, have you ever issued a similar condemnation on yourself for your faults and your failures? Are you allowing regrets in your life to now dictate the path of your life? Well, whatever it is that haunts you, whatever it is that comes to mind at this very moment, I assure you that there is grace for that. There is going back. There are second and third and fourth and hundredth and thousandth chances. Please don't issue a condemnation on yourself that God has not issued. Please don't treat yourself in a way that God does not treat you because God does not define our lives by our sin. He defines our lives by his grace. I think the second way that this can play out is that we believe that we have to make up for the things that we've done. 
We have to somehow pay penance for the ways that we have acted wrongfully. So back in the, the mid-2000s, there was this show on NBC that some of you might have heard of called My Name is Earl. And the main character of this episode began every episode by explaining the premise of the show. He said, I made a list of everything bad I've ever done, and one by one, I'm going to make up for all my mistakes. I'm just trying to be a better person. My name is Earl. Some of you may feel like Earl. You may feel like for every mistake that you've made, you have to be the one to fix it. And that may be why you are trying so hard to be a good son or daughter, to be good parents, to be good friends, to be good Christians. If you're trying to make up for the deficiencies in your life, then you may believe that that people are just going to reject you and that God won't love you if you don't fix it. But as we've already said, God doesn't relate to us that way. God is a God of grace, and he doesn't ask us to bear our own guilt by atoning for our sins. And why do I say that? Because centuries after this story, God would send his only son into the world, and he would be presented as a sacrifice for us. When Jesus came into the world, Jesus lived a life perfectly according to God's word. At one point, he actually said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And consequently, Jesus perfectly enjoyed God's favor. On multiple occasions, God actually speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And yet... Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice so that we might receive God's grace. We don't have to bear the guilt for anything that we've done wrong because Jesus has borne it for us. We don't have to atone for our own foolishness because Jesus has atoned for our foolishness on the cross. Every foolish and disgraceful, and terrible, and reprehensible thing that we have done, Jesus has paid for it so that we might be spared the heartbreaking results that we actually deserve. Jesus came to this world to redeem the heartache in the stories of our lives so that we might live not according to faulty beliefs, but according to God's favor and God's word and God's grace. And all that's required to receive this is to confess both with your mouth and to believe in your heart that Jesus did all this for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do confess (laughs) that our hearts have a hard time grasping the reality of your favor and your grace towards us. Lord, you have revealed those things in your word, and yet we confess that we are often not attentive to your word. We're not attentive to all of the ways that you call us to live. But we pray that your Holy Spirit would come in our lives and convict us of the place where where our lives are out of line with your word. But we pray that your Holy Spirit would also convince us 
of your favor and your grace for us. And that that would become the defining direction of our lives. Jesus, we pray these things in your name because you atone for us. Amen.